want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. In 1940, Admiral King put a letter out that said, hey, uh, we have taught our ship captains to wait for us to tell them what to do, where to do, when to do it, why to do it, and how to do it. And there's a war coming with Japan that we can't win if we, if we let them operate that way. And so we gradually raised approval levels up to where guys got used to chariot directs, you know, to where you got to the point that with the ROE in place over Syria and there's an Iranian drone that's gonna positioning to attack, I'm gonna wait for chariot directs. Even though I have the ROE, I have the rules to do it. We built that mindset, but look, we always do that in peacetime. My 3,000 hour in the Eagle plaque hanging here in my office. And the date on that 3,000th hour was 20 June 2000. So I flew 3,000 hours in the sea model all before 9 11. Just kidding. No countdown. It used to a countdown. Uh, you know, technology must be an update. But, sir, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Honored to have you on here. It's good to be able to chat and reconnect again. Looking forward to hear a little bit about your history. Uh, long time flying fast jets, now doing some other things up in DC. So, I want to talk kind of about all from what got you interested in aviation, your Air Force career, and then what you're doing today. But with that kicking off, you think you can do the 60 to 90 second elevator pitch of kind of who you are and where you got to today? Sure, Rain. It's great to see you. And thanks for inviting me to be on. I look forward to our conversation. Yep. So I'm Mike Holmes. My Air Force nickname was Mobile Holmes. You say that out loud once and you'll remember it. There's an old joke in East Tennessee that says, you know, what do a, what does an East Tennessee divorce and a tornado have in common? And the punchline is somebody's losing a mobile home. Uh, <laughs> so it was a good, it was a good fit for me. Actually, I got my name from Jack Catton, retired Air Force two-star, who was my first weapons officer in FTU. And he kind of named me that in FTU. I went to my first squadron and nothing really stuck. And then when I came to Kadena on my second tour, Jack was there as a wing weapons guy, and mailed me name tags, said mobile, and I just said, okay and went from there. Uh, you can see I'm a Tennessee guy. My dad worked for the university. I went to UT from kindergarten through college, literally. And I thought going to college meant going to UT. I didn't know you had many choices. <laughs> I walked on a year trying to play football uh, and I found out I was small and slow, but lazy. Other than that, I had everything they were looking for in a division one football player. I was a good student when I had to manage my time playing football as a freshman in engineering school. I was a terrible student as a sophomore in engineering school when I had too much time on my hands. I worked as a janitor. I did some other things and I needed help uh, to finish school. So I walked into the cooperative education office that UT ran like a lot of universities do where they place you with industry so you can work a quarter save enough money to pay for the next quarter school, go back to work at the same place in the same office, save enough, you know, pay for the next quarter school. 
And they luck of the draw, they placed me with NASA down at Kennedy Space Center. And oh. I had been a space buff kid. You know, I cut out all the newspaper clippings of Gemini and Apollo. I watched it all on television. My teachers would let me do all that in elementary school. But I kind of lost track uh, of that. I got interested in it again down there. And one of my friends, one of the other co-op students was learning to fly in Patrick's Aero Club. And I went for a backseat ride with him in an old T-41. Seemed fun. I could afford to fly once a week the quarters I was down there in the Aero Club. And so over about a year and a half, I got a private pilot's license. Nice. And then a couple of the guys I worked with were retired Navy pilots. And they said, you know, Mike, you could sit here you could come to work with us straight out of school and, you know, pretty soon be sitting here watching the clock with us waiting to go home every day, or you could go have some adventure first and you should go do that. And we can come back and talk some more about it, but that's how I got interested in uh, a military flying career. I actually took the oath with the Navy in a delayed enlistment program in like 1979. That didn't work out. And so I joined the Air Force through OTS in 1981. Dodge the Navy bullet. I mean, you'd be floating yep. around on boats and yep. doing all sorts of terrifying things. Yep. Interesting. So no real exposure from the family or anything like that. Just, I mean, it kind of seems like happenstance that you landed into that and reignited the, the aviation bug and then pursued a path there. Yeah. My dad was a army officer. He did just a year or so active duty when I was born and then did a 32 year career uh, as a reservist. And so I, you know, I knew a little bit about military life, but nothing about the Air Force. I got recruited a little bit by the Air Force Academy as a football player, but they talked football. They didn't really talk uh, flying. And right. so, yeah, I came into it late. And as a result of that and having to co-op and spend those extra quarters working, I joined the Air Force at 24 instead of 22, which I think I was a little more grown up and a little more mature maybe than some of the guys were in my pilot training class. And I was pretty focused on what I wanted to accomplish. I saw that being a fape. Anyone who came in who, I mean, if it was 24, 25, 27, there's a big difference than someone rolling in straight from college. Yep. And it usually made a difference as far as the performance. Obviously, you did well during pilot training. Went on to go fly the Mighty Eagle. And in that point, you were the Eagle right out of pilot training, correct? I was. I was. Yeah. And, you know, I had some great help. And one of the things, you know, I'll, I'll interject here with occasionally is, uh, you know, I was in the Air Force almost 40 years, 39 and a half years. And, you know, I, uh, got to fly and I ended up retiring as a four star and people think, you know, maybe there was some preordained ordained path or, you know, you could see that was going to happen when you were a lieutenant. But I think that's really not true. I think at every step along the way, there was somebody who took a risk to, to give me a chance, you know, to prove what I could do from the recruiter that helped me get into the air force with a vision waiver in one eye that was 2025 to my T-37 flight commander who, when I was running up against the borders of being airsick, uh, called me in and asked me if I still wanted to keep doing it. Said it must be rough. Said you're flying good, but you know I, you don't have to do this. I'm like, oh no, I want to do it. And so he walked out into the flight room with all the IPs. All the students were gone and said, hey, everybody, Lieutenant Holmes doesn't get sick anymore. You understand what I'm telling you? And everybody nodded. <laughs> and uh, I was out of the airsick protocols. I flew my contact check ride with the bag in my hand. And in between the spin and the spin prevent, I puked without saying anything. I uh, flew with my knees, climbed back up, did the other one, landed. The check pilot never said uh, anything. And, you know, it went away uh, after that when I quit worrying about it. 
What do you think, or can you pin it to something where people are willing to help you out? Because I mean, I think my career is a testament to that. I've had a lot of people who've looked out for me and helped me out along the way. And those stories you just mentioned in pilot training, you know, I, I jump back to being a FAPE. There's a difference. There's some people, there, there's always going to be people that struggle going through pilot training, hands down. But it, for me, if I was going to answer, it's like almost like an attitude and the way someone carried themselves. You can tell if someone's passionate and they're willing yeah. to put in the work to get through it versus if they just, they're getting beat down and they're not putting forth that effort. It's a lot tougher to give that person, you know, an extra bit of help. I mean, yeah. is there something you think you could pin that to? Well, I think you, I think you're right. It's you, we tend to love people that have a burning desire to do the same things we do. And you just got to be careful that you don't end up only helping people that look like you, you know, but search out the people that have that burning desire, no matter where they came from or what they look like, or, you know, what their mom and dad did or what their race or sex is. And you know, I had certainly had people uh, do that for me. When I was uh, came back to Columbus 20 years later as the ops group commander, you know, I had to interview everybody who was being eliminated or was quitting. And, you know, you could tell a difference. Most of the time, by the time people got to me, they were, it was a relief to them when I told them they didn't have to go anymore. And uh, so. those are, you know, those guys didn't need somebody to intervene for them. And a lot of the people that had that burning desire never made it to see me because somebody gave them help spend extra time teaching them, uh, spend extra time working with them, you know, gave them the opportunity to catch up and get better. And I think, I think we like people that have a burning desire to do what, you know, we want to do. What were those early years in the air force? Like 1980s, different time period than yeah. my stint active duty. Yeah. And then obviously you're still around when I'm on active duty because yeah. quite a long career, but can you kind of talk to me what those early years were like? Yeah, it was a great time uh, to arrive in a fighter squadron. So, you know, after uh, IFF, uh, pilot training, IFF, one of the things was there were no training breaks. So I finished OTS on, you know, like a Friday, and uh, two weeks later I started pilot training. I finished pilot <laughs> training on a Friday, and the next Monday I started IFF at home, and I had two days to get there. I finished IFF and had about a week off and started FTU. I went to this two survival schools, and so I made it to my first squadron as second Lieutenant Holmes, and I was mission ready and at my second red flag when I pinned on first lieutenant. So one of the changes was there were no training delays, and you could just bang bang right through the training courses. Uh, the old F-15As we were flying at FTU, you know, they had a radio and a half in them. They had a 24K radar. Most of them did not have an RWR, and so I made it to Langley into new uh, brand new off the line C models with videotape recorders, which were really cool. Instead of having to carry a tape recorder and using a, a 35 millimeter film projector uh, through your gun camera, our squadron <laughs> leadership were all Vietnam guys. Uh, that first squadron I was in, our top three didn't have 500 F 15 hours between them because the people that were majors and lieutenant colonels were F 4 guys that had been to the staff and then came back. And the biggest difference was how much we flew. So when I got to Langley, we had a like a 21, 22 U rate, which means every airplane flies 22 times a month. And then we added air to surface to our dock because uh, we wanted to be able to cut roads in Afghanistan or Iran to stop the Russian, you know, advance in those days. And so we went to Dare County, uh, another 
12 times a half. And so we went to a 23 and a half U rate. So the big thing wow. was that I flew 300 hours a year uh, those first two years, which means I flew between 20 and 25 times every month, which means I flew almost every day and then a surge week where I'd fly 10 times that week. We did not brief or debrief nearly as well as the guys do now, uh, but we flew a lot. And guys said things like fighter pilots are made with the engines running and the canopies down, which meant, yeah, debriefs, that's all good, but where you're really going to learn is flying, so let's go fly. Interesting. Now here's here's my question. The How do we go from that to where we are today. You know, if we just talk about the training pipeline yeah. and this is a podcast series in and of itself, but what, what do you think? Let's just talk like the training pipeline yeah. where now you might wait 15 months to go to pilot training. You graduate pilot training. You might wait six weeks. You might wait two weeks. You might wait two months to go to IFF. The there's no one showing up as a second Lieutenant and a fighter squadron. There's no one. I, I think, Maybe, maybe a first lieutenant yep. who's Gary Penn on captain. So how do we get to that point? Well, part of it is the capacity we cut. So when I was a pilot training student, there were, we still had more bases open. We still had Reese open. We had recently shut down Craig. I think Williams was still open. So there were two more pilot training bases. Then we were training more pilots. And so there was more capacity and more slack in the capacity. Holloman and IFF, I think, had four squadrons flying the T-38 so they could take, they could keep up with it. And the FTUs were sized for the bigger Air Force. We hadn't done the, the post-Cold uh, War benefit drawdown yet. So everything was sized to produce a whole lot of pilots. And the bigger you are, the more slack you had. And so there's a lot more slack in the system to absorb the extra people that were going through it. Over time, we went for efficiency and we cut all the slack out so that uh, there's no extra time. And if you're a day late, slip a class, uh, there's no room for you. Then when you get there and you got to wait to get into it. But I think it was the cuts that we made in the name of efficiency as we drew down the size of the operational enterprise. And then we drew down the size of the training enterprise. So I know your last stint as the air combat commander, I remember you speaking about this specific like absorption capability. So fighter pilot production rates, fighter pilot retention, yeah. that was all some hot topics. But one aspect of that was the absorption and correct me if I'm wrong, but the initial game plan to create more fighter pilots was surging at Seymour Johnson and they surged for a little bit and kind of broke their backs and said, we can't do any more. And then turned to the Viper cause there's guard reserve bases. There's a little bit more absorption capability in the Viper to a certain extent. What was what was your thinking, or how do you feel like it went? Slash, where we are today? Is it green? Is it healthy? What's your take on it? What kept you up at night? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think we got there. And you know, there's there's several things we can talk about here. But one of them is one of the things I realized is that uh, you know you could talk about a pilot shortage you can talk about a fighter pilot shortage what we really had was an experienced fighter pilot shortage and where that really was worst was in the f-16 so anything that was hard or was a problem or was difficult or was trouble in the fighter community it was worse in the f-16 and the root cause was you had three conus active duty fighter squadrons trying to support eight overseas with a remote tour built in so there's just no, there's no life for, for guys. And the CONUS three squadrons were really just an MQT machine. 
and an experiencing machine so they could send guys overseas. Uh, the FTUs were trying to keep up with that demand. And so the root cause of that problem was, you know, most of our problems, since half of the pilots in ACC, half of the CAF fighter pilots were F-16 pilots, the real problems were in the F-16 fleet. And because we had problems there, we had problems everywhere. If you went to the A-10, the F-15C, the F-15E, things weren't in nearly as bad a shape in absorption. And, you know, I went to Shaw right after I took command and they were ready and they wanted to show me their letter of X's and they wanted to show me the grind they were under trying to produce students and the, the limited number of IPs. And, you know, I, I looked at it and I pulled out a letter of X's from that squadron that I was in in the 80s. And they had more IPs in the squadron than any squadron I was ever in prior to 9-11. But we had a little different you know, modeled in. Part of it is we flew a whole lot and so we could experience guys faster. But the squadrons I was in had maybe, you know, four or five uh, instructor pilots. And the ones they were showing me at Shaw had, you know, six or seven, but that wasn't enough to keep up with the, with the load where they were. So we worked, we tried to convince people to, you know, to move Kunsan to Kadena to do some other things. We weren't successful in doing that, but ultimately I think it's going to require some changes in the F-16 basing ratio if you're going to fix the F-16 and you have to fix the F-16 to fix the CAF. Uh, part of the reason that we wanted to work hard to try to get op squadrons into Tyndall after the hurricane down there was so we wouldn't build the F-35 Enterprise the same way. We had three op squadrons at Hill and we wanted to go ahead and add three down at Tyndall so that would have a machine of six squadrons in CONUS to produce people to go to the overseas squadrons and eventually the guard squadrons. Yes, and I imagine the the politics of it, once you get three squadrons in the Tyndall, then at a congressional level, like they're there, and it becomes very difficult for yep. for Congress to say shutter. And I'm, you know, again, watching it at my level, like where they're talking about, hey, get rid of, uh, what was it? Basically the F-22s that were at Tyndall, in the B course that would cost more to upgrade. But you know, when, when the NDA has that in there and then Congress says, no, you're not retiring them. It's that kind of battle that goes on. So if you're able to get the foothold in there, that's, that's the objective. Yeah. And I think the, you know, you have to work with communities. You have to work with your codels. I think their codels understood that, Hey, the F-22 wasn't going to be there forever. Even if they keep those airplanes, which are scheduled to move to Langley now and move the FTU up there. But that by, you know, buying into the F-35, they'd be buying into a future, a long-term future uh, for Tyndall. And so, uh, you know, you don't want to start building your plans and your programs. Uh, my last two jobs in the Air Force, the last one, as you said, was as the Air Combat Command commander. The one before that was three years building the Air Force's program that turns into the budget for three years. And you don't want to start building a program or a budget based on political implications, because if you do... You have nothing to argue with or for when you go across the street to the hill. You've just become political like everybody else. But you do need to understand the context and, and where they're going to go and try to... One of the games you play is uh, what you leave out of the budget is just as important as what you put into it because you can maybe get other people's money to pay for some of the things you leave out. So you try to figure you get the most money you can to achieve the goals you need because the Air Force doesn't get enough money to meet all the things that COCOMs wanted to do. And so you try to leave a few things out that you think OSD will pay for out of their holdback money, and then a few things that you think Congress will pay for uh, on top of the budget. 
How do you think things are like 2023 now, as we sit here and record this, when we talk fighter pilot uh, retention, I know you've been removed from it, but now it'd be kind of get good to get your perspective because yep. your experience, where do you think we are? Where do you think our experience level, where do we think we are as far as, you know, combat capability as we turn and look towards near peer threats more and more? How do you feel about things? Well, I think our guys are are capable, and I think squadrons work hard, and I think they're still, you know, the most capable uh, aviators out there. But they're not as good as they want to be, and they don't get the opportunities to train that we would like them to have. We don't have the realistic threat that we'd like to train against. We don't have the simulator environment that we would like to have, and we're not flying enough on a on a daily basis. But, you know, when I'd go down and talk to squadrons at Shaw and at Seymour and at other places, you know, they'd say, hey, look, sir, you know, with with mission planning, briefing, execution and debriefing, you know, really about three events a week is all I can handle to do the way I've learned how to do it. Uh, So, you know, we tried to pivot toward, hey, let's talk about getting 12 events a month between flying and sims. And if it's the traditional bad weather months and maybe you'll get a few more of those in the sim, if it's good flying weather, long flying days, you get more of it in flight. And then accept the fact that to do the training you need to, you need to search uh, probably, you know, once a month, whether that's just turning two sorties through the hot pits or whether that's flying multiple times and, you know, getting three in a day and realize that you won't get as much brief and debrief on those days, but you'll get reps uh, in the airplane uh, that you weren't getting. So I don't think guys are training as much as they would like to. I don't think they're training as much as their leadership would like them to and we can we can talk around this a little bit and some of the whys if you'd like yeah absolutely it is actually interesting having you in here so general malley maestro who's our wing commander when i was down there and yep. i know you were his boss the the piece is actually interesting with this is I, we've talked about him on the podcast a couple times he actually called uncle and i don't know the dynamics between you and him and you know how it went down with our flying hour program at shawl but that's a good example. I do remember there's one month in the month of July. I guess this has been 2015, 2016, right before I did demo. I think I flew 25 times. It was too much, right? Like you never want to like, you never want to say that, but you're just, you're just churning out. You're just surviving. You know, JFIS start to go out there and fly. You're not briefing. You're not debriefing like you really should. And there's a balance to that. But um, I think he was the, one of the first wing command. I mean, he was the third wing commander I had at Shaw and he was the first one that I at least had that discussion of, Hey, we got to throttle it back. We're, we're breaking the pilots. We're breaking the jets. You talked about that a little bit. It's, yeah, it's I, no, I, I would. So part of what we, you know, that air force I joined in 1983, when I got to my first stop squadron, we were flying at that rate, but it took five years to get there. You know, when Gerald Creech, who was still the TAC commander at the time, when he took over, uh, the bottom had fallen out to the point that they were flying about uh, as small an amount as guys are now. So airplanes and pilots were flying seven or eight hours uh, a month. And Gerald Creech came in and uh, did several things to try to teach units how to fly again. We started down the path of doing a lot of those same things in 2017. And we're making progress. Shaw was actually up to where they were flying their RAP uh, more months than not. And we're working toward, you know, having better trained crews until COVID came in and we had to go to split maintenance crews and do some things. But there's a, a slippery slope, as Gerald Creech called it. 
And we got introduced into this because of the frequent deployment. So again, that Air Force I was in, uh, we went to Red Flag twice, three times a year. We went to shoot missiles once. We were probably gone 90 or 120 days a year, but it was two weeks at a time, no long right. deployments. And so we could, you know, we kept that pace up. We flew when we were gone. We flew when we were at home. And we would occasionally go check our flag to Europe for a month to go to the base that we would fly against uh, the Warsaw Pact from, you know, if we were going to do that. Uh, but we were there and we were at home and we flew a lot. When we started doing the longer deployments to the desert, we started taking time off when we got back, which was deserved and justified. But then we also gave ourselves permission to fly less. And we started, uh, you know, flying only two go days. We, fly to, we started doing one go Fridays. We went back and back and back and we kind of forgot the techniques that it takes to schedule maintenance and train maintainers to be able to generate those sorties. Uh, as a squadron commander, the 27th Fighter Squadron, so, you know, 20 years later, uh, we worked hard ops and maintenance to where we flew 327 sorties in three days, uh, 100, you know, 100 plus a day for three days. But the way we did it was by the time-honored focus on scheduling airplanes so that you were putting the right maintainers on them at the right time to get the work done that you needed to do to keep them ready, and training maintainers. Uh, training five-level maintainers to be able to support and sustain, sustain that, excuse me. And at the end of that three days, you know, our jets, I had two broken jets for uh, CGBs that had burned up from all the hot pit refueling, but the jets were in good shape. Jets like to fly. Over time, we gave ourselves permission to fly less, and we let our days fill up with other things that we didn't used to do when we were flying 25 times uh, a month. So... There is a trade-off between the quality of brief and debrief and flying. 25 is probably not the right answer, but 8 is not the right answer. And somewhere in there, I think, around, uh, you know, 12 to 16 events a month is about the right answer for the 4th gen and 5th gen airplanes and the complexity that they pose if we're flying them. The maintenance piece of it, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Doing the demo piece was nice, having the maintenance team dedicated your jet. Now, while you did rely on support, you really could get, and again, it's just three jets, but there's a lot of work to be done with those, but you can get into the rhythm with it. Getting ops and maintenance to play nice, right? Maintenance is typically graded on metrics of producing jets and things are broken. There's a lot more that goes into that. But if the jet's not flying, the jet's not broke, right? And that, again, simplistic terms, but when it goes fly, the chance of it breaking and red, you know, turning a PowerPoint slide red, that's always a potential issue. There have been times probably during your career where ops and maintenance are tied together in the same one. I saw it on the deployment. I thought it was very efficient because everyone is focused on the, the mission at hand and you weren't competing for different objectives, whether it be to green up the number uh, on the PowerPoint slide for maintenance or produce the number of sorties for ops. And yeah, that is a simplistic way of looking at it. But did you see, you know, a benefit to one way or the other, or is it possible to blend those two? Well, when I came in, we were, uh, you know, we were separate. The AMU and the ops unit were separate. There was an AMXS, uh, the AMU OIC in my first squadron. The second half, when we got an outstanding on ORI, was Lieutenant Judy Fetter, who ended up being uh, General Judy Fetter uh, years later. Uh, and she was top-notch. She came in. She interviewed all her NCOs. We had an RI coming. She got rid of the ones that she didn't think were on board with what she wanted. They focused during that ORI. I actually 
had a boil on my neck where I got infected from poopy suits because of the poopy suit flying we had to do at Langley. <laughs> and so I wasn't available to fly for two of the two or three of the days. And so I was a ramp rat in Kim gear riding with Judy or with her assistant. And we had a great relationship. We cranked, cranked out sorties, ops and maintenance. But again, we had brand new airplanes. Uh, the parts were there on the fly line. If you needed a radar part, it was in the truck. You didn't have to. Now, if you need a radar part, it's a Kadena, you know, and you got to wait for it. Uh, to get there. Then as a, when I was a captain under when General McPeak reorganized at the very end of my, you know, first three flying tours, I started watching squadron commanders struggle to learn maintenance when we put them together. And it was a tough process. There was a lot of learning to be done. I went to school and staff when I came back, I was an ADO and an OPSO. And as an ops officer, I was really fortunate to have two outstanding teachers and an objective fighter squadron that had ops and maintenance together. Guy named Jerry Johnson, captain becoming major, was the squadron maintenance officer and a great chief. Olaf Kasperson was the chief. And we sat down, you know, across the table from each other and decided we might not always agree, but we're always going to trust each other and believe that we were coming from a position of, you know, the best for everybody. We built a great relationship. We learned how to do those things together. And so by the time I moved across the street to be a squadron commander, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of what it took to generate sorties. And I wasn't shy about critiquing my maintenance guys. You know, the last thing I did every day before I went home was go ride the fly line with the prod super, the night prod super, and see how we were looking for the next day. Talk about jets and which jets were unscheduled and how many were broken and do we want to add and work through that. Uh, you can add jets, but if you fly all your airplanes till they're broken, you can be pretty sure that they'll all be broken eventually. You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a middle ground there. And then the first thing I would do every morning when I got there at six was get in the truck with that same prod super who had been there all night and see how we did at fixing airplanes and decide what we were going to do. And I became a real strong believer in that you always want to have spares if you're doing CT flying, because if you don't have spares, the jets decide which lines are effective and which ones aren't. If you do have spares, you can make sure you get that flug ride or MQT ride or IPUG ride off that you have to get so the rest of the week schedule will work. And so there's a learning process. As an ops group commander, I felt pretty comfortable uh, with contract maintenance at Columbus. You know, we did, took some steps back to get them healthy so that we could fly more. And then uh, as a wing commander twice at Seymour, without that experience, I don't think I would have felt comfortable coaching maintenance group commanders, both at Seymour and at Bagram, and being able to decide when a squadron could handle more and when they needed to step back. So I'm a big believer in teaching maintenance to future commanders early. My chief, Deb Musselman, when I was a squadron commander, a fantastic chief, she was one of the first women to be an F-15 crew chief in 1972, I think. And she was around as my maintenance chief. You know, if you ask her, she'd say, well, you know, sir, I just soon teach you now when you're a lieutenant colonel instead of waiting <laughs> till you're a wing commander to try to right. uh, explain it to you. So, you know, we did the experiment in Mountain Home uh, to go back and work through that. And then to Shaw, they did another experiment, which was part of the problem is that we organized our AMXSs into great big thousand people units with the commander who spends all their time doing separation packages on the 10% of their airmen that are not ready to be in the Air Force. And then we put the junior rank in least experienced maintainers down in the AMU and you get predictable results. 
we wanted to flip that. And so we wanted to push the authority and responsibility. So you got to give them back their phase. You got to give them back their scheduling. You got to give them back control of the tools that it takes to meet the flying schedule and build one that can fly ref. And then you got to push more experienced officers down there. So the maintenance group commander at uh, Shaw said, hey, sir, I'd like to try something a little different. What I'm going to do is split the AMXS up into three separate squadrons, into uh, generation squadrons. I'm going to push captains and majors down into those squadrons. And now we'll have a partnership between the OPSO, uh, a lieutenant colonel or a major, and this maintenance officer or major. It won't be driven by this power imbalance to where the lieutenant's you know, going to say yes no matter what, even if they don't agree, and then go to the group commander to get them to turn it around and intervene. You need to have a partnership that are close enough to the same rank where they can interact with each other and trust with each other. And, you know, they they proved to Shaw that that model works too. If I had my pick, I'd still have ops and maintenance together in one squadron because I think that's the way you're going to war. I think that's the way you're going to do ACE. I think you need to build the relationships and the expertise in training instead of shifting to a different uh, structure when you go down range and you know it, it goes it comes back and forth if you go look at the history of the air force about every 20 25 years we reorganize maintenance between right. decentralized and control of the fighter squadron and centralized you know joe creech believed that centralization at the wing level was morally wrong. He thought that's what communists did and we were fighting communists. <laughs> he thought Americans did best when you gave them the tools they needed to accomplish a mission that they clearly understood and then you put them in competition with each other to see who was best, which is how you ended up with sortie boards, comparing squadrons and all those things. And, you know, I think Joe Creech understood Americans and understood what makes us tick, which in general is... Uh, Autonomy and competition. That's the piece, the autonomy and competition. I, you know, again, I've said it, I was very fortunate with the bosses I had to, up, including you when doing demo, I had a lot of autonomy to go out there and do and make decisions at, you know, an 04 level, which is not always the case. And so like my example, I don't know what the solution is for this and not saying this is a systemic problem, but there are these stories that exist. So for instance, I would go with the maintainers, get out of the shop, I watched like their tool turn in. This is the end of the day after doing, you know, 11, 12 hours. Yep. And while tool accountability is critical, I would watch the tool turn in and checkout process and it would take an hour to turn in their tools. And you're like, this is, and you count the number of maintainers in that room. So you're like, all right, there's 40 of them right here that I'm seeing. There's probably another 40 that are going to be showing up and we're going to do this three times a day. How many man hours is that a year? You know, it's those type things where I'm making an assumption that there is a, it's a, it's a risk mitigation, it's a comfort level, it's a leadership piece, somewhere in the middle where we hear like innovate or die, you know, accelerate change, but somewhere it gets capped off where those decisions were, you know, an 04 and 05. And I'll actually ask this to you. You know, I always said, uh, you know, you, you put uh, a, a group commander, a wing commander at Shaw who has a quarter of the nation's seed capability, but the amount of regulations and red tape that even they have to go through. And here's the example of like putting like in demo, non-combat related, but to put someone in the back seat requires it to go all the way up the chain. 
So do you think is that does that come out of like the Cold War era where we were a big air force and a lot of regulations? You know, how does that yeah, exist? There, there's there's some of it is do that, but I think what we live with. So you know, there are certainly parts of it that are written in blood, as people say, right? There are lessons yeah. learned the hard way, but that doesn't mean you have to poke people in the eye while you're doing them. So you can have an efficient tool issue and and check-in process. You got to dedicate the manpower to it, and you got to make sure people understand what their goal is, which is to get that shift in and out by you know a certain amount of time, and you're going to grade them on it. It's again, here's your mission, here's your standard, you're in competition with each other, and let's figure out how to do it. I think as much as maybe that old days have to do with it, it's more about this war that we fought for 20 years where it was a political war. They used military tools as part of it, and we became convinced that the downside of having something go wrong had global political implications, and we would rather pass up the opportunities that an autonomous crew or an autonomous organization might gain by acting on their initiative uh, to avoid that one big mistake that would end up on the front page of the New York Times or might turn 100 people against us, you know, in the in the little province in Afghanistan. And so we gradually raised approval levels up to where guys got used to chariot directs, you know, to where you got to the point <laughs> right. that with the ROE in place over Syria and there's an Iranian drone that's going to positioning to attack, I'm going to wait for a chariot directs, even though I have the ROE, I have the rules to do it. We built that mindset, but look, we always do that in peacetime. Uh, you may have heard me talk about the letters from Admiral King that I used with our squadron commanders. In 1940, Admiral King put a letter out that said, hey, uh, we have taught our ship captains to wait for us to tell them what to do, where to do, when to do it, why to do it, and how to do it. And there's a war coming with Japan that we can't win if we if we let them operate that way. So I need you to take the blinders off, loosen the reins, realize they're going to make some mistakes, but let's make those now in peacetime instead of losing ships to Japan. You know, he followed up six months later with, a, I meant for him to take thoughtful risks. And you can see, you know, some of the <laughs> back and forth. But we're in that same place now, a war that we fight against China or a war that we would fight on the continent of Europe because of the... Uh, proliferation of national level ISR tools that are available commercially and the ubiquity of long range fires means that there's no safe areas, there's no hiding place and everybody can see everything and communications, you know, you've seen the chart that shows all our communications devices and the thing China has built against each one of those to try to target it there. So right. we need to be teaching our leaders and we started you know, we started by, hey, we're going to send captains out on the weekends again to go do things without having somebody looking over their shoulder. There'll be some things just go wrong. They'll do their best. We'll work through it. Squadron commanders, I want you to act like you have the authority and responsibility you think you should have and dare somebody to stop you. You know, as Gerald Brown says, proceed until apprehended. We've got to change that mindset and we've got to push more autonomy down because you're going to be out on a lonely island in the Pacific or out at a lonely piece of concrete in the trees in Poland somewhere, and there's no not going to be anybody to tell you what to do or how to do it or why to do it. You're going to know your mission, and you're going to make the best decisions you can. Well, sir, I appreciate you uh, jumping down that rabbit hole with me. I wanted to kind of back up a little bit, talk a little bit more about your career. So coming out of you know the 80s, fall of the Soviet Union, Cold War, I know yep. you guys were just getting ready to go take the fight to the, the Ruskies. 
what was the what was the nineties? What did that look like for you? And then you're stepping into you know post nine eleven, a lot of your later career, all leadership, uh, dealing with you know yeah, employee contingency operations. Can you talk to me? Yeah, I'm surprised when I I'm sitting here. One of the things in front of me is I have my my three thousand hour in the Eagle plaque hanging here in my office, and the date on that three thousandth hour was twenty June two thousand. So I flew wow. 3,000 hours in the C model all before 9-11. In That's that, impressive. In that world that we talked about. And it was right. you know, fly, 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 teach, teach, teach. I was, my job was teaching people how to teach people to fly and fight in the F-15. I went to Langley. I went to the weapons school en route to Kadena. I was a squadron weapons officer for three years in Kadena. I went to Holloman. I was a squadron weapons officer for a year. I was a wing weapons officer for a year. I was supply commander for a year. I pinned on major selected one year early at the 12 year point was when I pinned on major. So I was a captain for eight years and in the air force we're in now, we promote everybody on time under 10 years time in service. So I had those two extra years of teaching MQT and learning how a squadron works uh, at that level. Uh, we focused on Russia. We focused on the Warsaw Pact and even at Kadena, we focused on Korea but then we focused on fighting Russia in the Far East military district out in, you know, Kamchatka and up in the Pure Isles and, and those places. Some crazy stuff and some crazy mission rehearsals uh, that we did. And then we were still going checkered flag to Europe if you were a CONUS-based squadron. And I made several trips to the Netherlands to Schusterberg and Hills Ryan, which were the bases that we would fly uh, out of. Uh, we'd spend uh, a five-day exercise living in a hardened ops decon and every time we came in and taking a shower and actually doing the things that we you know talk about doing then when the wall fell uh we we kept flying we, we started shifting our focus toward the middle east and we had had the rapid deployment force which was focused on fighting russia and iran and afghanistan if russia decided to move the thought was that russia would move to try to get a warm water port and that they would uh, take the airfields they were building in Afghanistan and then move into Iran and try to take Iran's oil fields and a warm water port. And so our we had a mission to be able to rapidly deploy and do that. And then, you know, focus shifted. Uh, we were still doing a little bit of everything until 9-11. And then post 9-11, you know, was focused on homeland defense. And then we started to do, we had done the rotational deployments to the Middle East for the no-fly zone prior to that. And I spent most of my time in the 90s doing that, going back and forth to uh, Alcars, to Prince Sultan, in C-model squadrons from Langley, in uh, three different squadrons, you know, going back and forth to do that. And as my wife would say, you know, you're ADO in one squadron, and you get back from a deployment, and they move you to be the OPSO in the other squadron, and they're deploying in three months. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> you come back from your second deployment with them as the OPSO, and they move you to be a squadron commander, and that squadron's deploying in a week uh, in my case. And so you got your extra times in it. Those started off as 45-day deployments. They stretched out to 90-day uh, deployments. And then we got up to where we were with six-month deployments uh, with the determination being that it was better if you were going to be deployed, you know, one or two out every five days, it was better to have a year at home to try to bring in MQT and flug and build readiness than to try to go for uh, – three months every year. Were you guys able to do any training while you were over there? Was there any CT or is it all 
There, there were on us prior to 9-11, there was CT. We were doing no-fly zone, and we would take 18 jets. So we had to have six. Uh, you know, we kept four up in the no-fly zone, and we would have six front lines and spares. And then we would usually have four to five jets available every day to fly CT. So we mostly flew BFM and ACM, just keeping your currency up and maneuvering uh, instead of flying around in circles for six hours over Southern Iraq. <laughs> The uh, yeah, just doing the contingency operations over and over again, yep. and then the, the amount of proficiency you lose in your other skill sets is drastic. And it yeah it continues to be a big problem for the squadrons to point now that you know your your job is to deter Iran, uh, and you're an F thirty five guy or an F sixteen block fifty guy. You know you get worse every day you're there. Absolutely, I mean coming back and trying to rip the bandaid off between yep. you know a month of one. Yeah, everyone's got leave and things like that. The jets seem to always take two or three weeks to reacclimate to the environment. Everything's breaking. Same when you go there. Um, you know, so you end up by the time it's all said and done, you're a month and a half from being home and yep. just kind of getting back into the reintegration process of flying tactical stuff. But um, can you talk to me through so I'm curious about your time at Bagram as a wing commander, what that was like then. Um, what, what years were you the Bagram wing commander? Um, March 08 to April 09. So 13 and a half months. And that time period, I'm trying to, you know, align that with what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan because it ebbs and flows, but I did MC 12s in Afghanistan. And one of those things, one of the McIntyre guys, I remember supporting him on the frequency. He was almost, he was a lawyer on the radio as far as reading off the rules of engagement to make sure these guys were cut off, surrounded, had no means of escape. And then I think they were dropping, is it a V5, GPU-38 V5, the low collateral, you know, carbon fiber bomb. Yeah. Um, you know, which really had no no impact whatsoever. But that that conflict was a stark contrast to then my time in OIR, where, I mean, the gloves were off at that point. Yeah. And I guess with that, here's the kind of the tie-in, which I thought was interesting you brought up earlier. We were so afraid to make one mistake or have one person, one unit make one mistake that would then land on every front page across the world what was it like leading a wing at that time period well it was people ask me hey what was your best assignment you know charles and i tell them well you may not believe this but it was the year 13 and a half months at bagram i mean i hated being away from my family there's time i can never get back but i had the opportunity to put everything i had learned up to that point to use in a place where uh, we believed it really mattered with a team that was really focused on accomplishing that mission. So at Bagram, uh, the 82nd and then the 101st were the, had been given RC East and they were transitioning in late 2008 from RC East and 101st running the whole war across Afghanistan to splitting up into four RCs and bringing in another US RC down in the Kandahar area. So we flew mostly in North Afghanistan, except on weekends, because NATO didn't fly weekends. So on the weekends, <laughs> we would go down to Kandahar and pick up some extra lines and do that. But we covered right. the whole country. Uh, we covered all the forces that were deployed, NATO uh, and largely uh, U.S. Army. The Marines came in a little later, and then we did the buildup and the preparation. So we were building up for the surge in Af Afghanistan. Uh, we had a group at Kandahar. We laid the groundwork for them to become a wing, and shortly after I left, they became a wing at Kandahar. 
we built the, we moved the A-10s down there. So in my, most of my time at Bagram, we had a squadron of strike eagles. And at one point, I think we had 28 strike eagles there. Uh, we had a squadron of A-10s and we got up to 24 A-10s there. We had the slick C-130s. We had EC-130s. We had a Navy EA-6B detachment that was doing counter IED work uh, for the most part. And we had the rescue uh, contingent. And then down at Kandahar, we were flying bacon and RPAs and uh, HH-60s. And then as we moved, as the country moved down into the Southwest and the Marines came in, we had to pick up that extra rescue mission. So we brought in additional rescue forces and pushed that envelope out all the way into the Southwest corner. And it was mostly, it was a year of transition and we dropped a lot of bombs, uh, probably 40% of our flying was uh, in support of National Mission Force forces, most of that at night and then some in the daytime. And then the rest was cast for traditional forces. And you know, one of the differences between in Afghanistan and Iraq was in Iraq, you had roads. In Iraq, if a unit got in trouble, you could drive to help them. In Afghanistan, you couldn't. Units were out there and it would be hours, maybe days before anybody could get to them. And so you re really relied on air power as armed overwatch uh, for those units uh, to be able to keep them alive. And, you know, you've probably been to Bagram and as you step out of the fighter ops, there's a sign in there that says, you know, the only thing that matters today is an 18 year old with a rifle that we would slap on the way out. And, you know, that hasn't always been what we had trained for. But while we were there, everybody in that wing, that's what we were focused on was trying to keep our American forces and our coalition forces alive against people on the ground that were trying to kill them. We also had provincial reconstruction teams, I think six of those, and they were half, either half army and half air force or half army and half Navy, usually commanded by a, a sailor or an airman with a army S3. Uh, and they were out trying to provide do hydroelectric power or solar power projects, build schools and do those things. They were made up of people from all across the Air Force. And the airmen that I lost during my time at Bagram were drivers and people in the provincial reconstruction teams, bomb loader from Ellsworth, people that had been tasked into the AAF to come do that uh, kind of work and were killed by IEDs out on the very terrible roads. Against Gosh. It's crazy just to think, uh, you know, 20 plus years, Afghanistan, where we are, are today. Uh, and obviously a lot of blood, sweat and tears, lives lost, lives changed. Um, yeah, that's a whole other thing in and of itself. And then I'm sorry, I was there in 2012 and then, you know, they hear the stories of buddies who were there in, uh, 2020 and 2021. Well, they, 10 uh, guys who went in there will tell you, you know, they could pretty much do you know, whatever they wanted. They came in and built Bagram, moved into the Russian tower. Right. Uh, there weren't many of them. The fight was largely uh, local uh, and around them. And then, you know, gradually the rules, the complexity of the rules will ebb and flow. You end up getting rules so thick that you can't understand them all. And so a new CFAC will come in and cut it down. And then over time you add things back in and then a new CFAC comes in and cuts it down. But, you know, the rules, the rules are important. I would tell every new unit that got there that look i'm trusting you to follow these rules and these rules link you directly to through the constitution of the united states 
to a presidential order to use force in defense of the United States and the American people. They're the difference between you and the people you're fighting is that you're linked through a constitution to a national order to do this. As long as you stick to those rules and do your best to operate within those rules, I'll have your back wherever we go. It's my fault too. And whoever you end up in front of, I'll end up there with you. If you break those rules, you're on your own. Was kind of the talk that we had. And the other thing I learned during the course of a year is that the other reason for those rules is to help people go home with their honor clean. So at the end of a deployment, uh, you know, a year, you drop a lot of bombs, you kill some people, you're going to deal with that for the rest of your life. And if you follow the rules, you can go home with your honor clean and know that you did those things and you were part of a constitutionally driven organization that decided to employ violence in defense of the nation and its interests. And you can still be the same person, you know, that you were while you were doing that, while you're a granddad and doing the other things that you're doing. If you get sideways with those rules, that's when you come up against the moral injuries, you know, that haunt people uh, the rest of their lives. Yeah, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but I could absolutely see it. And you hear the stories where that's a slippery slope. We've talked about it before. I mean, on the podcast, we've, I mean, it was the conversation you got to have, like, it's a, it's a deadly business. And even though it might be the worst human being in the world, the leader of ISIS, whoever it is, it's still a human being and a life. So it's very serious when we're talking about that and making sure you, you do it the right way. I would like to kind of transition here as we get close to the answer, um, to respect your time. So. My first question is going to be if you had a blank checkbook and you didn't have any restrictions, how would you shape things to make sure the nation's ready to address the next fight near peers? And then if you can kind of lead that into what you're doing today now that you're, sure. you're out. Sure. Well, there's a couple of things I would do. What I would start with is I would start with the organization that builds the defense part of the president's budget, which is CAPE. And OSD. It's Capability Analysis and Program Evaluation. And the way we build our defense budget in general is we start with last year's and we modify it. And so if you're coming out of 20 years of ground war where most of the money has gone into ground forces, you're going to start with that last year's budget and you're going to modify it. And so it takes years of modifications to change to a budget that's focused on air, cyber, space, and naval forces that you need to fight China. Part of the reason is we don't have an agreed on set of analytical tools to be able to work through a process to say, what's it going to take to deter China or if we have to fight them, when? And so it comes down to arguing in politics between services, between senior leaders in the services, uh, between uh, great career civilians and political appointees and OSD trying to do their best and then on the Hill. So you need to start with the analysis of the threat and decide, you know, what's effective. You need the analytical tools to back that up. And then you need to take a look at the rules that we built around how we acquire things, which in general, our rules were written uh, during a Cold War era to provide the maximum oversight by Congress and the most fairness to defense contractors. They weren't written to provide new capabilities at scale and speed to warfighters as they need them. And so if we really want to deter a fight with China, we need to go back and look at those processes. Do we have analytical tools that we can rely on to tell us what we'll need? Can we change our budgeting process so that we prioritize those instead of breaking everything a little bit and salami slicing everything across the military? And then are we willing to change our rules 
to accept some risk in the way we acquire things so that we can do them at the speed that we need to. And on the outside, part of what I've learned about that is, look, you know, we're a country built on free enterprise and personal freedom, and yet we run our defense department and acquisition on a Stalinist model of central direction, <laughs> you know, that, like I said, General Creech would roll over in his grave over. Uh, if we're going to solve these problems, the way America solves its problems is by coming up with ideas that somebody can make money off of while solving those problems. So, you know, I'm working on the outside with a mix of smaller companies that have capabilities that warfighters need and could deliver those faster at speed if the regulations would let them. But look, we are always going to have to have Huntington Ingalls that builds nuclear submarines and Lockheed Martin that builds the F-35. I mean, these are technological marvels that, right. that you can't step, make a startup go build. So we're going to have to balance uh, those two things. But we're going to have to work through with the big guys, with the tools they need to go faster and down into the little innovative places and make sure that we're willing to accept some broken glass in order to move things faster. The incentives for our people in our program offices are basically written around. If you're a program manager, if you pad your schedule a little bit and pad your budget a little bit, deliver your program within that padded schedule and budget, obligate your money on time even though it'll be a little late and cost a little more because of difficulties with the contractor, you get to move up and go to a bigger program. There's nothing that says take risk, see if you can deliver this six months earlier and you know maybe you'll fall short, but maybe you won't. See if you can deliver it faster or if you need more money to deliver it faster, come tell us and prove to us you can do it. There's no incentive structure that supports that. It's built on do everything in the set way. Don't take any risk. I would ask squadron commanders at squadron commander school. I would talk about that environment I talked about where you wait for chariot directs. And I go, look, it's possible. I don't know. It's possible, though, that we've taught you as you come into this job that the way to succeed is, you know, keep your head down. Don't make eye contact. Wait for somebody else to mess up and then get to move to be a group commander, you know, coming out of that. That's not what I want. <laughs> what I want you to do is pretend like you have the authority and responsibility that you should have in this job and figure out ways to accomplish your mission that I've given you within the budget and resources I've given you and within the Air Force's core values. If you can do that, I don't care how you do it. I'll learn from how you do it. And there's a left and right limit, you know, that any reasonable person could operate in. And as long as you stay within that and do those things, I'm good. If you get outside of those left or right limits, then, you know, we'll have a talk and we'll try to teach you to come back in. And if we can't, I'll get another squadron commander. But there's a lot of room here to operate. So now today, what what is the day in the life of look like for retired General Holmes? Well, you know, my joke is I have 10 jobs, three of them don't pay, and I spend half my time on those three. And it's not too far from the truth. So retired four star, you spend six weeks thinking nobody will ever call you. And then at the end of six months, you've said yes to more things than you should have. Your wife's mad at you and you're trying to, you know, <laughs> figure out how to work your calendar and thinking about hiring an exec uh, to get everything done. <laughs> so I'm very fortunate to work at the Roosevelt Group, which is a government relations uh, strategy firm in D.C. that uh, they represented several of our Air Combat Command military communities. They represent about 20 defense communities around the country 
And then about uh, 20 to at any given time, 30 or 40 companies that range from small startups that are trying to make their way into uh, the defense business to big companies like Google is our biggest client. And we try to help them understand the system and the barriers that are in the system that I talked about and how to navigate that to get tools to people that need them. You know, we have a quote on our wall from Teddy Roosevelt that says, you know, the greatest pleasure in life is to work hard on something that's worth doing. Uh, we have about 10 full-time employees, and then we have a staple of, uh, you know, about 60 retired general officers and SESs that work as contractors that can bring the expertise we need. And like me, they're doing it because they still want to help warfighters. They still want to get tools to the people that are still serving. And so I do that. I advise some companies. One of the fun things I do is I'm the chairman of the board at Red Six, which is a augmented reality company that's trying to bring augmented reality to address some of our training challenges, starting on tactical aviation and then moving other places with the theory that, you know, a Raptor guy gets to fly maybe 10 times a month and they fly four of those as red air. What if a Raptor guy could fly all 10 of those blue air and we could put an augmented reality version of his adversary so that if constructive avionics, his missile doesn't work and these missiles defeated and somebody lives to the merge, he has an augmented reality, three-dimensional AI-driven adversary that he can have to react against uh, if he makes a mistake and somebody lives to the merge and, and work through that. Uh, a couple other companies that I work with and then on the nonprofit side, I'm a member of the Air Force Studies Board at the National Academies of Art Sciences and Engineering. We work basically for the Vice Chief of the Air Force. He'll give some problems down uh, and we will spend, you know, some time with experts trying to think through that and send, you know, send some advice back to the Vice Chief. I'm on the board of a group that tries to limit suicide among military and veterans called One More Day. And we try to bring proven data demonstrated tools to the suicide challenge. We try to move beyond 22 push-ups a day for 22 days right. to what actually works and what can we do to help communities fund and resource and use those tools. And then I'm the chairman of the Air Force Historical Foundation, which you know is dedicated to trying to preserve our past so we can learn from it as we go into the future. Just a few things. Just a few things. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Red Six Bond. He was actually one of the first guys I had on the yep. the podcast. It was episode 007, if you will. Yep, very appropriate. But uh, seeing some of the stuff he's doing out there, it's pretty cool. I've seen on social media, you know, seeing some augmented reality of him merging with a a flanker or whatever it might be out there that day is pretty wild. So uh, I think he and I are going to have. He's going to come back on the yeah. podcast. And, Talk about some of the updates. No, I've flown the Burkut several times. I've seen the technology. Uh, you know, I've hit the I believe button. The first time I went, it was a box, three-dimensional box in space, and we flew around it, and it moved, you know, changed the way it should. We flew through it. It changed the way we should. Then you go rejoin on a KC-46, and you can move around it. You can see the lights change. Then you put a J-20 out in a, you know, 4G turn, and you go out and you can demonstrate this is what inside the circle looks like. This is what outside the circle looks like. You can fly formation with a T6. There's a whole, lot of, a whole lot of things we can do, I think, to get more bang for the buck out of our training dollars. We'll be out at WebTAC next week trying to do some more demos for Air Force senior leaders. We have some contracts with the Air Force, and our goal is to move forward through the process and all those barriers to become a program of record so that we can start to scale it and get the benefits out to 
airmen and help them train better. It would be cool. I, you know, I've only seen it. My son has a PlayStation. He, he's got the Ace Combat. He was flying around in a MiG-29 the other day. But you put in, like, you know, 1G standing in the living room, it's pretty immersive. I can only imagine. If you could get it to the point like that in the jet, where it's that immersive and that real, would be pretty, pretty awesome. So, um, with that, sir, so here's here's the transition out of there, okay. and then I can free you up. But if you found, you know, 15, 16-year-old mobile walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him, tell him to do something different, et cetera? No, I wouldn't. Frankly, I wouldn't trade uh, anything. People ask me, you know, at Squadron Commander School, we'd also have spouses in for the week, and Sarah and I would spend some time with spouses, and you know, they would sometimes say, do you have any regrets? And uh, I wouldn't change anything for me. There were a lot of years I'd have done it for room and board, uh, the chance to go fly fighters and be a part of the team that I got to be a part of and live with the people that fly and fix airplanes, and then with the people that... Uh, make support that at the group level and then with the people that run a whole base, you know, so that we can do that. Uh, I wouldn't trade any of that time. And there were jobs that were better than others, but uh, outside of it, what I probably miss the most is coming in to work to find a happy little team, you know, focused on accomplishing something good uh, today. So I'd tell him, uh, keep plugging at it. You know, you're going to come up against some barriers, but keep plugging, uh, work hard, and hopefully somebody will help you make your way uh, through those barriers. But, you know, I will say that uh, I recognize the sacrifices that my wife has made. Uh, we got married. We were dating the year before I joined the Air Force. We dated long distance for a couple of years. We got married after I got to Langley. Uh, she's moved all around the world. Uh, she writes kids chapter book novel like, like kind of from mid-grade readers, like 10, 11, 12 years old. She's had a chance to do that, but, you know, she's a Phi Beta Kappa valedictorian of her government class of William and Mary, and she gave her life to support our country, dedicated her life to it, you know, just like I did. And there are times that I wish I had been more understanding of that, and I'd worked harder to, uh, you know, limit those sacrifices on her. You know, for my kids, I think it was great for them. My my yeah. oldest daughter has a physics PhD and as a scientist at the national lab in los alamos uh her little brother is a f-16 pilot in the dc guard uh, defending the national capital region i think they were well prepared for life they were mature they were ready for the challenges they face uh in college and in uh, employment post-retirement i've gone from zero to five granddaughters in two <laughs> years which is great uh but no, I wouldn't trade any of it. I would tell him, uh, keep plugging. It's worth it. Oh, that's awesome. And it is the spouses who have the toughest, toughest job. Because while you're out deployed and you're working out and eating and sleeping, the dishwasher's broken. The kids are sick. The tires are flat. The air conditioner breaks. Yeah, everything happens while you're gone. Yeah, and then we're moving for your job yeah. again. Yes. You know, so and the, you work a job, you work a community, you you have a home that you fit into, and then we're moving. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks. So the spouses that they don't get enough credit, but they make it all happen because uh, they got yeah. not the raw deal, right? But they got a they have a tough deal at times. So, sir, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rain. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you. I'm proud of you and all that you've done inside and outside the Air Force. Uh, best to everybody tuning in, and I hope I'll see you again sometime. Thanks, sir.